This is an ABC podcast. A while back on Conversations, I interviewed the great British author Jeanette Winterson. And Jeanette grew up in the north of England with uh, an eccentric mother, to say the least. And her mother strongly disapproved of her reading any book, really, aside from the Bible. And this is how Jeanette Winterson explained how she made her own library in secret. When I was working on the markets, I used to spend my money on buying paperback books, bring them in. And if you've got a single bed standard size and a collection of paperbacks standard size, you can fit 74 per layer under the mattress. And of course, my bed was rising visibly like the princess and the pea, and I was getting closer to the ceiling and the floor. So she'd be going around with the flashlight after nine o'clock. She came in, saw that the bed was up there and her daughter perched on the top, and pulled a book out, and it was really bad because it was D.H. Lawrence, Women in Love. So that was the beginning of the end. (laughs) Mrs. Winterson was right to be suspicious of books because they're dangerous things. You buy a couple of them, and they seem to multiply, almost without you knowing, and then you've got a library. Stuart Kells returns to Conversations today, and Stuart has brought his library obsession with him. One day, a while back, Stuart picked up a very rare and beautiful book, and that was the beginning of his own library, and he's dedicated his life to the study of rare and precious books. Stuart's travelled the world with his family to explore some of the most fabulous collections of books on the planet, and he's written a book which is this lovely and delightful history of the library, and it's simply called The Library, A Catalogue of Wonders. Hello, Stuart. Hi, Richard. How are you going? Well, thank you, sir. Now, just tell me the story of how your library started with the purchase of this one book, please. Well, I was already someone who went to book sales and and, and trash and treasure markets and and secondhand bookshops. So I was already probably primed to find something interesting. But I went to this book sale at um, Melbourne University at Trinity College. And um, I was one of the first people to the door, like the kind of, you know, stock take sales thing where you bust through. And as soon as I went through the door, <laughs> I saw this, saw this um, all, all the books were standing sort of spine upward on trestle tables, as they do. And I saw this nice leather, uh, Morocco leather spine with double raised bands, with light kind of glinting on it across the room. And so I was there in, in a microsecond and grabbed this book. And it was you know, bound with this beautiful full Morocco binding. But it was a bit of a mystery because it was anonymously published and anonymously uh, authored and sort of something from another world. And how big was this book? Was it, uh, It's a quarto. So, right. it's a, yeah, it's about, um, it, it's squarer than a normal sort of novel, but about the same sort of size. And what was the title? It was called Pieces of Ancient Poetry from Unpublished Manuscripts and Scarce Books. And it was published, so it was, it was written by someone whose initials where the name should have been was NY. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. And you turn to the back of this book and it actually had the disposition of the copies. So where all the copies had gone. And six of them were on blue paper. And this was one of the six. What does that mean, on blue paper? It was actually printed literally on blue paper. So there was this part of the bibliophilia thing in the 19th century in particular is they're having special editions and special copies. So there'd be the -the run-of-the-mill copies maybe on a smaller page or with just plain white paper and then there'd be the specials the large paper copies or the blue paper copies or the you know the the stone colored paper copies or the pink paper copies specially bound ones ones with facsimile leaves inserted so part of the whole sort of you know the bibliomania was this flowering of different editions and so this was one of the special ones and if you look through the the subscribers the people who actually bought these it was the men who'd actually founded the Roxburgh um, Society in, in, in England. And who were they? They were the uber-bibliophiles. 
they were the ones who basically lived for the book. Um, and it was a society that was founded at this incredible um, auction, the, the Roxburgh sale, and it included the, um, the Roxburgh Decameron, which was this amazing edition of, of the Decameron that was the most expensive and valuable book of the 19th century. So these guys, in their enthusiasm, set up what became the most exclusive bibliophile society in the world, and this book had a really strong connection to them. And it's somehow fetched up in Melbourne. And, and how much was it on sale for? Well, I kind of wince when I say this, but it was, it was $3. Um, <laughs> and, and, and obviously, you know, uh, I was quite, ha- quite happy to pay that. Took it back to my um, studio apartment where I was living with my fiancé, who's now my wife. And we, we, we suddenly had this VIP guest at our house. Um, and so we thought, well, how do we look after this thing? Do we, do we kind of put it in an archival box? Or we, is it all right to touch it? Should we do the, the white gloves thing? And so researching how to look after that book and researching where it came from, and it was an amazing uh, journey uh, to find out about that book, uh, really opened up a whole world of of, um, bibliomania. And how should you handle such a book? With white gloves? I'm definitely one of the handling people, so not the the white glove people. Um, The way we think about these things now is actually really, it's gone full circle two or three times, but the best sustenance for old leather bindings is actually the oil in your hands. So you should fondle, you should fondle and and handle (laughs) your leather books regularly. Uh, And I do that. I have a a large library at home now and I I actually go regularly around and run my hands over spines and, and pick things out that I haven't touched for a while. So yeah, the white gloves thing's not that important, but how you storing the books is incredibly important. So, you know, avoiding big changes in humidity, um, you know, keep, keeping the temperature okay, avoiding direct sunlight, that kind of thing. When you saw the initials NY on the book, I suppose the initial thought was it must have been published in New York mm. way in the early 19th century, but NY identified the author, but how did it identify So the they're author? the terminal letters of his first and last name. So the author was actually the editor. He wrote the preliminary matter and then edited the, the manuscript content was John Fry, and he was a young bookseller in Bristol at the early part of the 19th century, and he died in his 20s. He died, I think it was around 27. Well, that's but, intriguing. I don't know if there's an answer to this, but why wouldn't he identify himself as JF if he was going for initials? I wonder. Good question. Um, one of his later books um, was also anonymously published, and it's J dot dot N F dot Y. <laughs> so not very anonymous at all. Right. Um, but the reason why this was published anonymously or s- sort of pseudo-anonymously was because it was um, uh, bawdy, uh, you know, sort of sexy literature. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of ballads and poems from the time of Shakespeare, but they're a bit raunchy uh, and not the sort of thing that you'd like to publish in the 19th century without getting into trouble. So out of this story, there's just so much in that one story. For a start, <laughs> the fact it's bawdy literature. The other thing, it's made of Moroccan leather, which really needs to be fondled. And <laughs> and, uh, you know, this this brings us to, I suppose, the thinginess of books. Mm. Some, um, like my wife's a librarian. She likes, she said, I've got too many books at home. And she says, why don't you just get them out of a library when you want them and return them? And I say, no, no, I actually need to I have need that to connection own the thing. I actually need to own the book. What, what, what do you think about all that, Stuart? Well, I think a lot about it. Um, and a lot of, um, you know, what, what appeals to me about books is that physical side. And it's the, it's the sensation of ownership and having a connection. With, with John Fry, I, I tracked down a lot of his books after that first find. And I, I think I've got 
the best John Fry collection in the world. Not many people are actively collecting John Fry, so it's or a, it's a pretty, NY, as he's also a pretty, known. Pretty open field, <laughs> um, but they're beautifully bound. They're, they're, um, his personality really comes through the books. They're beautifully printed, um, and it's a project to actually protect those books. Um, and you know, it's it's that fractal nature of bibliography. There's so many different details around how they're printed, how they're bound, where the copies have been. So that aspect of provenance research is incredibly important in bibliography now. Has it taken over your life a bit? And, and what's, mm. this, what's this library of rare books you've got like now? It's pretty big. Um, we, we bought a house from a, a chap who was a bookseller and he had done a renovation which was specifically for the library. So it's got 20-foot tall bookcases uh, and we actually took some of the bookcases out because it was it was that bookish, but there's still around a kilometre of bookshelves in, in our house. Does that mean you have ladders? Um, there's flyovers and mezzanines. Uh, it's a bit like how uh, one of the, the main London libraries uh, it has these narrow, uh, tall canyons, and then every, every, at every floor there's a sort of a metal, um, slightly transparent uh, ledge. Um, so it's it's really something else. It's incredibly great if you're in your mid-40s. It's absolutely terrifying if you're one or if you're four. Uh, and so I have two two daughters who've grown up with um, lots of baby gates uh, and lots of no-go <laughs> no areas. But I, I love that idea that you can look at a library and, and sort of read the, the spines and read where the books have come from and actually know something about someone. In the same way, I guess you can read someone's sort of Kindle selection and, and see the same thing. But when you actually go to a house and you, you see the collection of books, you can see a lot about the person. I don't know anyone in the history of the world who's checked out someone else's Kindle edition and gone, I think you're right. <laughs> I mean, I did this when I was in my 20s. You know, you, you check out people's libraries and you do make judgments about them as a result. It's, 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 I know that's terrible, but but, they, but there you are. When I met my wife, she had the most fantastic library in her place. Books I'd meant to read but hadn't gotten around to reading, that kind of thing. They, they, these are really important. They make these important statements about about who we are. So you were first seduced by your wife's library and then by your wife. Well, she's pretty good looking to begin with. So, <laughs> that, so maybe that was maybe that was number one. Off the, but it, didn't, it certainly didn't hurt that she had this amazing library. Yeah, you have to be a bit careful about that though, because um, there are stories, for example, from uh, from France about the aristocratic chap who, you know, approaching his death, um, you know, he's sort of looking back on his life and looking back on what he's going to leave behind, and he, he this terrible thought comes into his mind oh, no, people are going to look at my library, and it's terrible. So he quickly sent out people to say, build me a decent library before <laughs> I die so that people will think I was, you know, educated. And, you know, the thing is, that's how we wanted to be remembered, but here he is all these years later being spoken of <laughs> on the radio <laughs> and on a podcast as a fake. Uh, isn't that terrible? Oh. Terrible for him. So what do you just had respectable books bought for him that he'd never read, essentially? Mm. Bibliophiles have had to endure that for a long time. You know, people walk into your house and say, yes, but have you actually read all of these books? And say, well, I've, I've fondled some of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's not enough. Now, I've scribbled all over your book, your co my copy of your book, Stuart. What do you think about that? But, I mean, the idea I'm shocked notes, and appalled. Are you shocked and appalled? Well, I, I guess you're, you're, you're famous, so it kind of added to it, I guess. I'm not famous. I'm on the ABC. That, <laughs> that means by definition I can't be famous. But, uh, but I've scribbled, you know, as, as you can see. Uh, one of my producers ha just hates the sight of me doing this, and I have to do it out, out of her line of sight because she just thinks I've desecrated something lovely. But it's kind of helpful for me. What do you think about that whole idea of making notations in the margins and all of that? Is that acceptable or unacceptable? Well, obviously age helps. Uh, the earlier back the, the comments are, the, the more helpful it is. But 
but it's a bit uh, related to that point we were talking about before around provenance. Uh, you know, the, the, each physical book has its own story, um, marginalia, little, you know, the, the pointing finger in the in the margin, that kind of thing. Um, but there's there's this kind of interesting in in the history of libraries. There's this disconnect in values and multiple values. There are people who, a bit like me, handle books very reverently and think about how to preserve them. And then there are other people who are completely unsentimental about the book. It's, it's just a kind of a means of carrying data or whatever. And Charles Darwin was one of those. Um, and so if he had a book and, and parts of it were boring or not quite on his subject, he would just tear it out and throw out the other bits or give them to someone and keep the bits of the book that he thought were important. And he would write extensive notes in a conversation with the author on the page. Now, obviously, that's incredibly useful now when you look back through the, the, the Darwin uh, material because you can see his thought processes. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it, it can be useful. Um, but, uh, yeah, the guys that sort of, you know, tear books apart and their library ends up with just fragments of books and, you know, that, that's a bit, bit horrible. This um, Henry Clay Folger was uh, was the uh, chap who was behind the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington. And he was vacuuming up texts like crazy. Um, but he wasn't very discerning in the kinds of books that he bought. And so some of the first folios have been scrawled in by children. Some of them are just, you know, missing whole plays or missing preliminary preliminary matter. Um, and some of them are made up from other um, editions of, of Shakespeare. So it might be sort of 40% a first folio and 60% a second folio or a third folio. So, um, you know, in a pretty important way, that's pretty unsatisfactory. I am with Stuart Kells. He's the author of The Library, A Catalogue of Wonders. Throughout this book, you travelled all over the world with your family to look at libraries, some of these famous and beautiful libraries that exist right across the world. Uh, what are some of the libraries you went to and, uh, and what were they like? So this was a, a grand tour we did earlier this year with the one-year-old and the five-year-old. Um, That's which, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's some kind of points we earned from that, uh, <laughs> not just frequent <laughs> flying points. And, um, yeah, we, we went through um, Hong Kong to, to Zurich and um, visited some of the major libraries in Switzerland, including up at San Galen, which is this amazing um, Baroque library, which started off as a, an Irish monastic library in in, um, in the Dark Ages and is now this incredible uh, Brock Library up near Lake Constance. Uh, we visited some important libraries in London, including Lambeth Palace Library, which is the sort of head office of the Anglican Church, um, and some of the university libraries, the British Library. Bodleian uh, Library? In, uh, we went up to Oxford and we had a, had a wonderful tour of the Bodleian um, and uh, saw some really important Shakespearean content up there, among other things. Um, and then uh, we did a very big tour of America because uh, the Americans do libraries very well. There's things that the Americans don't do well, um, but they do libraries incredibly well. And so um, we went to Boston and a lot of the important libraries in Harvard. So Boston itself has got a wonderful public library and there's also the Boston Athenaeum Library, which is wonderful. But Harvard has incredible libraries, including the Houghton Rare Books Library. What, what's the most spectacular of these libraries? You, well, the Houghton to... really um, blew my mind in all sorts of ways. The the endowment at Harvard, uh, the the amount of money they've got in the bank really means, in a, in quite a practical way, that they just don't have any limit to how wonderful that library is. And um, yeah, Harvard's got more money than a lot of nation states, doesn't mm, it? Yeah, yeah. I so, actually said to them, you know, maybe I should send some of that down to some of our institutions, but they they, they weren't sure whether it was serious or not. <laughs> um, but yeah, they've got something like thirty eight billion dollars in the bank. So if, if you had your kind of dream library, what would it be like? Well, a bit like the Houghton, uh, it's a um, sort of a 
Palladian-style, uh, English-style building. Not very large, but you walk in and there's this wonderful sort of spiral staircase up the middle and, and branching off this staircase, there are these themed rooms. And so one room is Samuel Johnson, Samuel Johnson material and it's first-class Johnson material, but it's also furniture and artwork and the, furni- the, the actual physical room is done appropriately for the period. The next room is the Emily Dickinson room, and it's you know, her books, it's artwork, it's furniture, it's done in the right kind of style, and it, it's almost like a dream place. Um, and I went through there with the five-year-old, and um, you know, the, the, the librarians there were incredibly welcoming to her and to me, um, and so she's 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 been sharing this story all around town, um, that she was handling a book which was signed by Shelley and inscribed to Keats. Because um, Americans do books very well, but they also do children's libraries incredibly well, and so they they understand the role of, of books in in awakening in children a, a love of of literature and a love of learning. So the the, the Houghton at Harvard was was mind blowing, but there were plenty of others. Uh, the Morgan in New York is is incredible in all sorts of different ways. The Library of Congress, everyone should go to the Library of Congress. Washington is a pretty strange place, and we were there right in the middle of some of the Trump and Comey uh, stuff. So it was a strange time to be there. But the Library of Congress is such a, you know, it's a mind-blowing space. I suppose that you have to begin by asking what exactly is a library. It seems to me like what you've sort of concluded, a library isn't so much books. Mm. It's really it's a kind of a storehouse of, of knowledge, stories, information, belief systems, philosophy, all that kind of thing. Your first library that you want to talk about is a library in central Australia. Tell me about this library. And a library with no books. Mm. It still has, uh, this is talking about the Songlines and the Arenta Library in Central Australia, uh, which is a very uh, contested library in all sorts of different ways, um, but, but a wonderfully rich and important library. And um, I've analysed that library in the same way you would think about a physical library. There was a physical counterpart to the Songlines in the Churunga Stones and in the landscape uh, and in other aspects of, of the first Australian's life. But the stories were held primarily through word of mouth and through dance and through song, and they were curated. Uh, they were an incredibly part, important part of life. Um, they were incredible, an incredibly important part of how the landscape was experienced um, and how um, generations engaged with each other. Um, and they were they were curated in a, in a very meticulous way. And one of the tragedies of, of the twentieth century study of those libraries is that there were there were um, betrayals and, and uh, errors in the curation of that library in the way that people came and possibly thinking that they would study those libraries actually did things to, to damage that, that library by taking away the stones and by betraying secrets and by misunderstanding how that library worked. These libraries, the, the, like the one in Central Australia from pre-literate cultures right across the world, such libraries tend to hold or not just stories but data as well inscribed into the land by the placement of things within the land i was talking about this with lynn kelly when she came on uh, a while back it's her belief that stonehenge stonehenge is a similar kind of thing we're, not, we're in the same sort of area here that people place things in the landscape and traveling through these monuments or objects or natural phenomena 
that's the way you um, memorize. They're like mnemonics. They're little memory mm. tricks to help you remember these stories. And then it, be it becomes very important that these stories are remembered by rote, word for word. So they're passed down intact from generation. So you don't have that Chinese whispers effect where it changes. And so there's elaborate patterns of recitation and elaborate taboos about who can know what and how certain types mm. of knowledge uh, is treated. I mean, I, for me, that's information too, isn't it? Like this, like don't eat the, the fruit from that bush but eat this one here. Or how to kill yeah. a kangaroo appropriately, mm. that kind of Where thing. to find a water hole, where and, to dig, yeah. And that's, you know, a, a wonderful example of that human connection between libraries uh, and, and ourselves, because fundamentally, why do we have libraries? Well, we have libraries because, because they serve, serve our interests. Once we get into the ancient world, we have the first physical books and then the libraries of books in places like Mesopotamia, uh, Egypt and China. What are the earliest books, if you like, if that's the word for made from? We're talking about initially uh, books made from stone or, or, or clay tablets. The very first clay tab tablet libraries, which you're talking sort of 3000 BC, a little bit earlier, were very humble. Uh, it was essentially, you know, storerooms of financial records and, you know, who paid what to whom and uh, who owned what. Um, but very soon after that, you see the emergence of the first illustrated books. Again, clay tablets, but with, with pictures um, and more and more elaborate ways of, of, um, of, of storing information. And not long after that, you see the emergence of hieroglyphics and and the first um, scrolls as well, and, and, and leading, obviously, to some of the amazing scroll libraries in the classical world, including the Great Library of Alexandria. You, you, you note that in 1200 BC, the pharaoh Ramesses II assembled a library of books of scrolls of papyrus. I'm just, I'm just even trying to imagine what that library would have looked like. Well, he had other, other materials as well. There were, there were stone, books made from stone, books made, I think, from, from um, other, other plant products, uh, even ivory, I think. Um, so an incredibly rich library. And uh, a lot of the, the classical um, library builders had uh, very uh, universal ambitions. They wanted to actually assemble every book and every kind of book. So Mesopotamian libraries had this ambition. The Great Library of Alexandria was, was this sort of book-mooching, you know, uh, voracious machine. And so whenever ships would come into Alexandria carrying uh, scrolls, the librarians and the, the Ptolemies would say, well, you know, leave those here and we'll send you away with a copy. Uh, we're not going to copy your version. We'll give you the copy and we'll keep the original. So when, so when a ship would come into port into Alexandria, mm. then then there would be... Like an audit. Or audit, audit, right. So someone like, uh, I don't know, guards or soldiers from the, the, the pharaoh or whoever was in charge at the time would go out to the ship, take its scrolls, bring it to the library. Send copies back. And send copies back. They'd keep the original in the library. And people, people wised up to this. Uh, and so there would only be, um, people would only be willing to send things to Alexandria if there was a big sort of bond, like a gold bond staked. Um, but even then, even then, the, the library would still, you know, take the, take the scrolls and pay the bond or lose the bond. Scrolls, you know, they have that, uh, as technology, they work the way they work, I suppose. How would people read them on, on those kind of... Like like poles on either end, mm, and then so there were rods, and, and you rods. could roll it along, but very very impractical in all sorts of ways because they're quite long. They're you know sort of you know, nine meters long, or so, uh, thirty feet roughly. And and there were like hundreds of thousands of these in the Library of Alexandria. Were they just all? Were they curated? Were they? Do we know anything about that? Or were they all just sort of thrown into a great big heap somewhere? Or? They definitely weren't in a great big heap, and we do know a fair bit about the history of that library and how they were cur curated. So there were um, corridors of, of niches and sort of proto shelves where. 
you'd have the scrolls. The scrolls were labelled, um, but even then there was such a diversity and such a, a multiplication of scrolls that there was a need for people to navigate through and to help people and help scholars. And so you see the first emergence of librarians. We know the library was destroyed quite famously. Do we know how? There's lots of different conversations and theories around what happened with the library, um, and all of them uh, are quite, you know, moving and, and, and dramatic. Um, lots of different fires um, were, were, were blamed. Um, and then there's the story of uh, Caliph Omar uh, taking over and saying, well, this is, you know, none of these are Quranic uh, texts, so we don't really need them. We can send them off and use them to, to heat the bath waters in the, in the, in the bathhouses, which is, which is a great story. But what's most likely, going back to our conversation earlier around curation and around conservation, what's most likely is that there were fragile papyrus scrolls in a river delta um, without a, a painstaking program of copying and curation and conservation. They simply faded away. Oh, my God. You, you, the loss seems to require drama, though, doesn't it? It's, it requires a dramatic story, the intervention of a caliph or a pagan revolt or something like that. But the most likely story is they just went there, they just weren't looked after and they faded away. But the thing I like about the, the story of Alexandria is the side story and the backstory. Um, so um, this, this, this sort of um, this good evidence that there was a lot going on uh, back and forth between the library and local booksellers and local forges and things. So uh, there are a few different rackets being run. One was uh, basically uh, squirrelling books out of the library to make unauthorised copies, um, but also given that uh, appetite of the library to acquire texts, then, you know, unscrupulous entrepreneurs would commission, you know, dodgy Aristotelian treatises and <laughs> Socratic dialogues and say, oh, here's this thing you've got to have, right? Um, and, and the library would buy them. And for, you know, centuries after that, scholars would take these texts seriously. So Man. some, so a lot of what survived from Alexandria are these sort of bootleg copies and, and clandestine copies. <laughs> You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. So coming out of the ancient world, we come to the great storehouse of a place much beloved by me, the city of Constantinople, now known as Istanbul, but was the second Rome, the second capital of the Roman Empire, which stored a lot of those scrolls and uh, great works of, of literature and mathematics and science from the ancient world in their own great libraries. How important was that to your mind, the fact that Constantinople stored these great works of the classical age? It was incredibly important. And it wasn't just uh, storing scrolls, it was actually uh, transferring content from scrolls to early um, parchment uh, and to codex form uh, books as well. So when you say codex form, you mean like the book we're used to today? The squarish. Squarish yeah. with uh, pages bound at one side of it. Exactly. Um, in, in, in printed on both sides. Exactly. So after in the, in the Christian era, uh, that book uh, format gradually became dominant. So people stopped relying on papyrus, um, which had all sorts of issues, as we've already talked about, um, and instead, instead used animal skin pages for the text, uh, and then later on, obviously, paper. My understanding of, of the great libraries Constantinople is that their their function was primarily one of conservation of texts uh, and and help preserve a lot of things were lost 
but they help preserve a lot of what we now know from the classic period. And that's a fascinating waypoint in history mm. where you've got this meticulous preserving and, and copying of texts that then nourished the Renaissance. You know, the, the, the first woman historian that we know of is a woman called Anna Comnena, who was the daughter of an emperor in Constantinople. And she wrote a classic book called The Alexia, essentially about the reign of her father. And it's still available today. And she begins her book by writing it as a uh, kind of a bit of a humble brag. She says, look, I was not uneducated in the works of Homer and Aeschylus and, and, and what have, and the, the great poets. Like, she, she's clearly got access to this library and she's read everything. And the way she writes about them, she assumes that her readers, her aristocratic readers, have all read it too. Mm. So the stuff was being kept and read and, and, and was known throughout the Middle Ages in Constantinople. Yes. And yes. then passed on afterwards to the rest of the world. Can you just talk a bit about how that happened? Happened. Well, at the fall of Constantinople, there was this incredible rush to, to capture the contents of the, the great libraries, uh, the Imperial Library and others. And it was imperfect, but a lot of text did get through. And there's, there's wonderful stories of, of um, Greek and Italian scholars going to, to um, Constantinople. Uh, and uh, one of them says that he, he traded his clothes so he could take codices back. And, and it was something he wasn't ashamed of. <laughs> now, I don't know whether he was fully nude uh, when he returned to, to Greece <laughs> or whether he just meant, you know, some, some of his more expensive clothes. Or he sort of covered up his delicate bits with books. <laughs> with books. That's right. Wearing a book coat on yeah, the way back. Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and so this, the, the, that, that moment in history really nourished uh, Venice as a centre in the trade of, of Greece manuscripts, but also um, it really um, nourished Roman and, and, uh, and um, Florentine and other Italian libraries, and ultimately uh, the rest of, of Western Europe. So that's how we get the Renaissance really flickers into life at that point. Meanwhile, throughout the Middle Ages in Western Europe, when Western Europe is really properly seen as a bit of a backwater, and it did have a dark age, unlike Constantinople, mm. how was knowledge preserved there in the libraries and monasteries of Western Europe at the time, and in, in, in Ireland and Scotland particularly? Well, Europe proper was really, it really was a dark age in all sorts of ways. I mean, there were, there were as, you, as you indicate, there were major libraries in the Middle Ages, but they tended to be in the Islamic world or in East Asia or in, or in um, the Byzantine Empire. Uh, in uh, the sort of typical monastic library of that period uh, in, in uh, Europe, if you're lucky for a large library, there would be 200 volumes. Uh, nothing like what you see in Game of Thrones or in Umberto Eco's Game of the Ro Name of the Rose, where you see you know 80, 87,000 volumes. Um, and so you know, there was this barely keeping the lights on. Uh, and one of the stories that I love is is this re-entry into almost a sort of scorched earth Europe, this re-entry of Irish and Scottish scholars and others and monks um, setting up monasteries, setting up libraries and helping to keep that, that tradition alive. But in the late Middle Ages, um, uh, yeah, this, this, we've talked about this kind of difference in values and there's this quite excruciating moment where you've got uh, uh, Italian scholars and others really understanding the value of classical texts and, and really appreciating the need to copy and conserve. And then you've got this kind of almost a neglect in some of the monasteries where books are just sort of thrown into the bottom of, of sort of mouldy towers 
And this is hoary genre of, of um, classical scholars and humanists going into monasteries and discovering these these sort of you know neglected texts uh, and and taking them back or, or bribing the monks to get the texts out or or just sort of putting them under their coat and taking them away. One of the things you show in your book is that the codex, the the book as we read it now, the in square book format with pages uh, and and binding, that comes in hand in hand with the development of the writing desk. Mm-hmm. You just talk about how that evolves into the into the bookshelf as we know it too. Well, all the way right back to the beginning of books, there's always been this sort of intimate relationship between books and furniture. So the, the way you would read a scroll sometimes is you would shove the the rods into your desk and then kind of roll it that way. Um, the, the emergence of the codex uh, form uh, in late. Roman and early Christian times was partly to do with the use of, of square desks. And then in those monastic libraries, you would have a lectern because there weren't that many books. So you didn't really need bookcases or anything like that. You would have the books lying down on a lectern desk or in, in a cupboard. Um, and then gradually towards the end of the, the Middle Ages and, and in, into the into the Renaissance, um, you have this multiplication of books, particularly with the advent of painting, sorry, of, of um, printing and of um, paper. Um, and so there's this wonderful moment of evolution where, first of all, you, you kind of raise the top of your lectern desk and have a few more books there, and then it hits the ceiling as you add more shelves, and then you fill in the bottom, and then suddenly what, you, what was a lectern and was a sort of a holy place of, of manuscript illumination, etc., has turned into this little um, bookshelf, and then it multiplies, and you have these little book spaces within, within what, what have become libraries. The pa- paper and... The printed book originate in China. Mm. How did they make their way over into into Europe from there? Lots of different ways through 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 trade and through conquest, but primarily through the Islamic world and through the Middle East. Um, and then it's it's partly through um, Islamic Spain that that paper uh, comes into into Europe, and partly through Italy. Um, and you know, around you're talking sort of you know thirteen hundred, fourteen hundred, you start seeing um, paper mills and. Uh, um, it's really the the kind of um, that nice accident of history where printing and paper arrive in the latter part of the 15th century that you get this incredible flourishing. So the number of books uh, made in Europe, um, say in, in the century after Gutenberg, was was larger than the, all of the manuscripts that had been produced in the thousand years before then. The story of Gutenberg is kind of um, quite tragic, really, in a lot of ways. We all, I mean, the Gutenberg Bible, Gutenberg print, uh, pr- printing press, we, most of us know the story of that. Uh, it's, it's essentially a refinement of block printing invented mm-hmm. by the Chinese. It's, it's refined by Gutenberg to move proper movable type. But what happened to Gutenberg? I mean, he'd, he'd spent mm. years and years and years in making a, a viable printing press. What happened once he'd invented it? You know, he was a, a gem cutter and a jeweller, and so you can see that refining happening because he was so meticulous. But as an entrepreneur, he's, he's kind of a really interesting exemplar of two ways to fail as an entrepreneur. Uh, one way he failed was essentially you know, kept coming back for money <laughs> and um, you know, refining and refining. Um, and he had uh, the chap he was lending him the money was, was um, pretty merciful. But also um, beware of your partners when, when you're when you're an entrepreneur. Uh, and essentially, uh, the, the debts were called in. Um, Schoffer and, and Fust um, took over the technology and took over the the project. And, and Gutenberg was out and ruined. And and then the next Bible and the next Bible and the next Bible didn't actually mention Gutenberg at all. And it's not until I think 50 years later that he was acknowledged as the one who had actually um, made printing viable. Not quite invented printing, but made it made it viable on a large scale 
the Vatican has got a famous library going right back, all the way back to 385 AD. That's before the fall of the Western Empire. It's that it's the Roman Empire. I mean, it goes that far back. Mm. The, the, I think you say the books, though, in its collection now come from much much later than that, of course. Was there ever a secret library in the Vatican? I've heard stories about this, but was there a secret and is there a secret library of books that are only for certain people? For a long time, access was hard in the library anyway. But yeah, literally there is a secret archive. I mean, all of the correspondence in, in the Vatican is called the secret archive and it's kept separately from the main collections. But my, my sort of perception of the Vatican Library is that, as you indicated, it is relatively new. Uh, it's a product of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment as much as it is from the early church. Um, but they always have had a, a, at least a scholastic and scholarly uh, function and, and an ethos of access um, and a, a willingness to hold potentially problematic texts from the classical era uh, and the wonderful stories of discoveries of scholars working in the library and making secret discoveries. Uh, Procopius's text, which you well know, uh, is, is a good example of that. But also, you know, amazing letters relating to Henry VIII and others found under a chair or between shelves. So um, on the one hand, the Vatican collections that they do have this aura of you know, antiquity and and secret, secret secrecy and uh, exclusivity, um, but on the other hand, uh, you know you, you only make discoveries because you're allowed in there to have access. You, you mentioned Procopius there. This was this was a history that he he was a historian writing in the time of Justinian the Great. So this is early sixth century. Now, he was an historian that would, would have been well known for writing quite respectful uh, books about Justinian and his architectural achievements, as a proper courtier would do. And then more than a thousand years later in the 17th century, 17th century? Yeah, 1620 roughly. 1620. A secret history of his was found in the Vatican Library, which was, which was essentially he would go home at night and pour out all of his hatred and bile towards the emperor and the empress and write scurrilous things like the the emperor was known to be a creature of Satan. He was seen walking around the palace. He detached his head and tucked it under his arm and was seen walking around. He wrote scurrilous things about the empress, Theodora, suggesting that she performed naked a parody of Leader and the Swan. We should, we should have a, a, a listener warning. A bit of a listener warning here. If you've got kids there, cover, cover your ears because it might be a bit hard to explain. But he, he wrote that apparently Theodora would... Appear naked in front of a, an audience, lie down on a tablet, have a slave come out and 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 sprinkle breadcrumbs on the bathing suit area of her body, and then trained geese would be introduced to the stadium, which would then peck the breadcrumbs. Now, when you read that, I had to put it in my book. When you read that, you go, "Am I going to put this in my book? Who knows? Is this is this just like Justinian taking his head off and walking around? This is a problem with these stories. They present themselves, and they're so bizarre and interesting, you can't ignore them. How can you resist a story with sexy geese? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and, and the most interesting empress of the uh, of the history of that empire. But I just love the idea that these things are being discovered still, like slipped between the couch couch cushions, if you like, or under a desk somewhere. And yeah, it's. It's the layers of stories there that, that are fascinating. It's the scandal. It's the the mystery and the sense of discovery. For me, uh, fundamentally, libraries are sexy places, yeah, because of the quiet and the personal side of it, and that sense of uh, of discovery. 
in in my kind of um, searching for for interesting stories about libraries, it's amazing the number of people who have said that they lost their virginity in the stacks. Or, really? Oh wow. yeah, 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 definitely. And and any librarian you talk to will say, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the Mile High Club, but it's it's the it's the six one three point nine six club or something like that. Um, and yeah, it, it's an interesting dimension. Well, I suppose if you're reading something above, you're feeling emotional. There's an intimacy there, quiet, um, a, a lot of staring, a lot of that going on. Bit of flirtation. Bit of flirtation, that's right. Which brings us to these kind of these secret collections that gentlemen in France and Italy in the 19th, 18th century had of, of erotic tracts. How, mm. I wonder how big these libraries could actually get of this, this kind of illicit literature. Oh, they were quite large. And this, 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 this is a huge aspect, particularly in the printing era. Um, this, this was a huge aspect of of, um, of um, bibliophily um, to collect erotic and pornographic collections, um, and, and they were assembled in all sorts of un- unlikely places you know, by you know clergymen and teachers and um, relatively humble uh, working men um, put together these collections, but also public libraries. So the New York Public Library had a wonderful erotica collection, uh, and it was locked in cages, um, marked very, very discreetly in the in the catalogue with a triple star code. Um, the British Library had a wonderful collection, has a wonderful collection of erotica, and there are great stories of people going to the British Library and saying, you know, I want to have a look at this particular book, and the you know the superintendent saying, are you a psychiatrist or a policeman? And they say, no, well, you can't have a look at it. <laughs> Uh, I, I've uh, been collecting stories about Australian book collectors, and this is uh, all of this is about digressions on digressions, right? And here's, here's a digression for you. Um, but there's a wonderful story of a collector in Australia called Glenn Ralph, who um, uh, collected erotica in the middle part of the 20th century at a time when it wasn't cool to do that. This came to light, um, came to the notice of the censor and, and the, you know, the trade authorities, etc. And he went to court for, for, for importing uh, erotic literature. Uh, and they, their solution was to assign a psychiatrist because why would you be interested in erotica if, unless you were a little bit off? So they sent the psychiatrist uh, to see him and you know, the psychiatrist's first question was, well, what have you got in this wonderful library? And he worked out an arrangement with the psychiatrist where the psychiatrist would pay him 10 shillings per book to borrow the books from this library and then when the psychiatrist went overseas, he would buy books in Europe and London for this guy to enhance his library. Would he have to report back to the police saying, oh, we, we seem to be making progress? <laughs> We're making wonderful progress. <laughs> so I love that, that aspect of subverting what's a stupid law and what was a terrible regime and two people coming to completely subvert it. Redmond Barry, famously the judge at the Ned Kelly trial mm. way back in the late 19th century. Tell me about his library, which eventually became the base of the collection, the State Library of Victoria, and his, his own personal notes. Well, the State Library is my local uh, State Library, the State Library of Victoria, and I'm, I'm a friend of the library, and it's a wonderful place. Um, and looking from the outside, it's a very solid looking institution with this wonderful dome, etc. Designed um, by John Monash, yes. Mm, but one of the one of the foundational texts of that uh, that institution is is uh, a set of what um, Barry called his day books, uh, and these uh, are a very uh, candid uh, account of his uh, conquests with um, mistresses and prostitutes and and married women, um, and he he writes his uh, um, scoreboard. In a very practical way. Like how? Uh, uh, like um, went to Parramatta, Mrs. S 10 times, and then went to <laughs> wherever, Mrs. S 
two times. <laughs> what's, now, what's a time? Well, I'm not sure what a time is. I don't think a time is what you might think a time was. I think it might be something smaller than a time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think there's a whole PhD uh, just in <laughs> trying to unpick. So, and from my point of view, it's wonderful that the library has kept that. I mean, Barry, Barry was a very interesting bookman. Uh, he wrote in a lot of his books and he's left behind this incredible um, documentary record. And the way we think about Barry now... You know, that's an important part of it. So there's this terrible trend, in, in particularly in the 19th century, when people like Byron and Heber and others had, you know, uh, homosexual uh, books or, or pornographic books or, or things that were, you know, um, heretical in some other way, um, that the executors would burn them. Uh, and so this is, you know, talking about the loss of books and the destruction of libraries. That was one one aspect of why, you know, the documentary record is not what it might have been. So it's wonderful that we do have Barry's, uh, even though they're a little bit, you know, salacious and kind of a bit surprising. It's a, it's part of the picture. We do have a bit of a horror of burning books. I mean, I know you do. I, I, mm. I have one as well. It seems to be like any time you see the act of burning books take place in the modern day, it's always counterposed with pictures of the Nazis burning books. Mm. And it seems to be an understanding that there's a civilizational line you don't cross when, mm. you, when you burn books. Nonetheless, books are burnt. Uh, tell me the story of Sylvia Plath burning Ted Hughes's manuscripts. This, this is a really good example of, of this sort of trans, uh, this sort of crossover between bibliography and human biology. Um, when when um, Sylvia um, was unhappy uh, with one instance of, of Ted's adultery, and it's reasonably well documented about what Ted was up to, um, she made a bit of a bonfire in the backyard, and it was uh, Ted's drafts and notebooks and works in progress. But she sprinkled in, in into the into the flames a sort of a witch's brew of fingernails and dandruff that she'd collected from the bathroom. And so this, this is Ted's fingernails and Ted's Ted's dandruff. Uh, and so it's not just destroying the books and uh, as a, as a way of, of kind of getting at the person, but it's actually burning part of the person as well. And, and I love that story because of the passion behind it, but also because of that crossover between us being sort of almost physically present in our books. Yeah, it's like a bit of roaring black magic engulfing uh, this, these letters, these uh, you know bits of the Enlightenment, consuming it and burning it, burning it to pieces. And what about the state of libraries and books today? I mean, there is the trend of e-books, which now seems to be going back to we now seem to be going back to the print word a, a bit more actually on on the, the physical book rather than the the e-book. Uh, what do you see happening with libraries today, Stuart? Well, talking about that disconnect in values in, in the sort of late Middle Ages and the Renaissance, where you had that sort of two different ideas of the value of books, I think that's really present now as well. So books are, um, there's people like me, you and I who, who, who love our books, and, and books are, have had a bit of a resurgence in, in the last few years. People are building private libraries and, and, and uh, valuing the, the physical book. But at the same time, there's a whole bunch of people that are saying, well, this is an old technology. It's being superseded by microfiche and by digitization and by Kindles. Just get rid of it. And so books are actually being destroyed at an incredible rate right now by libraries uh, and by individuals, uh, and they're being thrown out. Um, so it, it's, it's only, I think, the last time this happened was the, the latter part of the Dark Ages. We had that incredible disconnect. And, and part of uh, what is, is that so bad if, if the information's being recorded otherwise, just not on the printed page? Well, I'll give you one example. Um, this, this, is, this is reasonably well documented where a lot of uh, public libraries have said, well, for example, with um, periodicals and newspapers, we don't need to keep that because someone else is keeping it. And so um, they'll throw them out 
uh, and the other library will make the same judgment and the other library will make the same judgment and then suddenly you just don't have the physical copies. Now, uh, digital uh, versions are incredibly useful in a practical way. Um, you can use them for research and you can you know, share them and all that sort of stuff. But things are lost when you don't have the physical version uh, because you know there's, there's uniqueness in the, in, the, in the way they're created or there's uniqueness in the way that they've been stored and used. Um, so, yeah, there is that sense that we are actually losing something by rushing to, to just relying on digital versions. Yeah, we can't really rely on the hardware itself to be able to read the digital product at the end too. Like I, I think I've got lying around my place some dis zip disks from the 1990s with files yeah. on it, which I'm never going to see again and read again. I, even if I could find my zip drive, I wouldn't be able to plug it into my my computer. There's that, a problem there, isn't there? Yeah, well, that story of the, of the Doomsday Book in the in the in the eighties, which was a BBC uh, initiative to to store, you know, a, a big snapshot of, of Britain at that time, and they used a particular kind of, I think it was like a, a laser disc, uh, and you know, as, as as sort of soon as say ten years, fifteen years after, no one had a computer that would actually read those discs, and yet the original Doomsday Book was still, you know, where it had always been in, in, the, in, the, um, in the archives. Um, so, um, and they did actually work out how to read that, that text, but it was an incredible uh, effort of, of unpicking, you know, hexadecimal data and recreating how they thought people did digital directories at that time. And so, yeah, digital data is, in t it is fallible, um, but also, um, even if it weren't fallible, um, there's, there's nothing like that kind of relying on you know, the technology that we've relied on for a long time of using a person as the reading device as much as using a computer. Yeah, books are strangely high tech. That's the thing, aren't they? They contain vast amounts of information, quite a small space mm. that's easily accessible and you don't need an operating system to, to run it other than the, the human that's actually reading it. Uh, you mentioned the Amer Americans have begun libraries and uh, when every president completes his term, or has so far, they... They build a giant library. I've been to the JFK, John F. Kennedy Library in, in Boston, and, uh, you know, it's pretty impressive. It's, it's kind of really a temple about his presidency, really, and I'm, all these papers and stuff are there. Inevitably... The Americans do that well in the same way as the Mesopotamian kings used to do that well. That's right. It's quite pharaonic. <laughs> Inevitably, this means there will very likely almost certainly be a Donald Trump presidential library. Mm. I think we know one thing about that library already. We know it's going to be the, the very best. It's going to be a beautiful library. It's going to be the oh, it's even if be it's the not, best. even if it's not, it will be. There'll only be the art of the deal there. He'll pretty much arrange all his archives to be. Oh, burned, no, no, I'm there's sure. also there's the bogus Time Time magazine cover as well. That'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be there. It'll be a, it'll be a classy. It'll be in the foyer. It'll be a lot of gold. <laughs> a lot of gold. A lot of gold and a lot of, a, a lot of pillars. You've created a mental picture that's just ruined my day. <laughs> Ultimately, did this tour you went on change your idea of what a library is for? It did. It did. Um, it, it changed. It changed me and and my family as well. I mean, it was a life changing experience for all of us, except the one, the one year old who's oblivious. Uh, um, but yeah, it, it did. There's a really strong sense in America that they value libraries as places for for access and education, particularly the children's side of it. Um, and conversely, a really strong sense in the UK that um, municipal libraries are under threat, uh, and that there's this loss of these non-commercial spaces in in uh, in towns and cities um, and uh, a loss of a pathway to a, a life as a writer or as a, a life as a scholar or a life you know that's you know that's somehow lifted up 
so yeah, I mean, I came back really with a really strong sense that we're incredibly lucky in Australia because there hasn't been that same disinvestment in libraries here. People are still building libraries and they're still funding libraries, and we still understand in the same way that the people of Athens and the people of Alexandria understood that a library is an important part of civil society. If we could just get the children's entertainers out of them, then I'd be happy. I think, Stuart, that'd be that'd be my thing. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you so much. Wonderful, Richard. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. That was my conversation from 2017 with Stuart Kells, as selected by you. Stuart's delightful book is called The Library, A Catalogue of Wonders. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with richard feidler for more conversations interviews please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations discover more great abc podcasts live radio and exclusives on the abc listen app